Name a, a single thing a private insurance company does to make anyone healthier, to make anyone, to make anyone, to save anyone money. Health insurance companies operate like they're supposed to. They're businesses. They operate to make profits. How do you make profits? By giving away as little and collecting as much. It's the opposite of the imperative that we have as the representatives of the people. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 60 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversations. So here's what generally happens. What generally happens in a presidential campaign or really any campaign is the incumbent is forced to defend his record. The issues of the day be more or less become four more years or a change election. And what dictates that is usually how the issues of the day are viewed as being handled by the incumbent. And so this time we're hearing a lot about Biden's failure on immigration. We're hearing a lot about um, problems with the economy. And on the other side, you've got Biden trying to say, be afraid, be very afraid of Donald Trump and what he has coming. But every once in a while, there is a, it's hard to call it a tactical mistake, but there is an opportunity where someone raises an issue in the campaign that manifestly does not help their case at all. And that's happened recently when the Republicans that are running for president and Donald Trump for one, I started to talk about that age old thing that probably should have faded by now of eliminating Obamacare, repealing, and in their words, replacing Obamacare. Now, if this sounds like <clears throat> an issue you've heard a lot about over the years, Obamacare is not a new thing anymore. It is now part of the landscape of our country. Um, the uh, the number of people that were uninsured before Obamacare is about 40 million. Now it's less than 26 million. 19 million people are covered by the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act that lets poor people um, get health care. The way that was structured is the federal government, which shares the expenses on Medicaid with the states, said under the Affordable Care Act, if you sign up and you expand Medicaid coverage to more people and allow them access to be able to get to the insurance marketplace, we, the federal government, will pick up the costs. There's now a lot of states that uh, that have done that. I think uh, 40, mil 40 states have now signed up for that. You've got um, the idea that millions of people are already shopping for healthcare on the marketplace that was created. Um, and the reason that that is important is before Obamacare was passed, people who are individuals or small businesses that didn't have the buying heft to negotiate for lower prices generally had to pay a very high price. For example, someone my age, 59 or 57 or 56, who had to go out and try to find insurance had a very difficult time doing it. Now that there are these marketplaces that have been set up under the Affordable Care Act in each state, many people are getting their coverage that way, about 18 million people. And also there are people who are benefiting from all of the changes that were made in healthcare law as a result of that, you know, there was, if you, know, if you remember when Obamacare was passed, people commented on how many pages it was and how big it was. And did you read the bill? And Nancy Pelosi, who was the speaker at the time, got into some hot water when she said something along the lines of, you know, when you'll know what's in it when we pass it. And now that was seized upon by my Republican friends to be like, you don't even know what's in it. In fact, what she was saying is that very often laws that improve people's lives, you have to wait until those improvements become part of law for people to really say, hey, I'm happy with this. And, and that's what happened with Obamacare. It's very popular right now in the country. And there are things that are in it that are now part of the law 
that um, are very difficult to undo because people expect it. No lifetime limits on insurance, for example. Before Obamacare, if you had an expensive healthcare need, you could find yourself basically running up against an arbitrary cap and having no more insurance coverage. Um, people who had pre-existing conditions, people who were sick when they signed up could be uh, could be denied care. That was changed under the Affordable Care Act. Women who were pregnant were not eligible in some programs for prenatal care or for um, or to be able to stay in the hospital if they had complications. There are um, a lot of these things. Even the thing about young people, we're hearing a lot about the weakness of Biden's support among, among young people. Now people who are up to age 26 can stay on their parents' health care plan and millions of people who, who have done that. Things like preventative care, all of these things that we haven't really argued about very much as a country because Obamacare has become the law of the land, but also it has been settled by the American people, both on the left and on the right, as something that was successful. Now, we have a lot more work to do on healthcare inflation. One of the reasons that Joe Biden and Congress passed the uh, Inflation Reduction Act was to get a handle on some of these prescription drugs. Um, there's more even that that can be done on forcing forcing insurance companies to, to provide more coverage. But what's interesting to, to consider right now is that the Republicans have struggled mightily over the course of now over a decade to come up with their own health care plan because they are caught kind of in this canard about um, health care. Um, there really are, loosely speaking, three ways you can provide health care that we've chosen to do it in this country. One is that we have a program like Medicare or Medicaid or the Indian Health Service, the Department of Defense. And we say that if you're not feeling well or you're sick, we will um, basically take, collect um premiums from you. We will negotiate with doctors and hospitals and machinery companies, and we'll negotiate a good price for you. And when it's time for you to go to the doctor, you can do it. We'll be the pass-through. We being the federal government to be the pass-through for, for your money. And it's very efficient. That's why so many people like Medicare so much. The other way to do it is to say that your employer, the person that you work for, has to go out or can if, or if they want to or not if they want to in the past, go out and buy insurance and offer it to you at work. It can be widely varying. You can be in an auto repair shop on one side of a street and an auto repair shop on the other side of the street, and you can have two very different healthcare plans. And as a result, two very different qualities of life. And I should point out, I didn't point this out in the wrap up of what was in Obamacare. It requires people to provide healthcare for their workers. So that's the second model, the insurance company model. And then the third model is something that the Republicans have never really fleshed out. They say, listen, we'll give you a tax cut to go out on your own and buy health care. And so if you are someone that has epilepsy, if you're someone that has a disorder of some sort, if you're someone that has a congenital problem, you basically don't get any additional help or care from the federal government. Um, and unlike other things, the pure kind of capitalist model doesn't work in healthcare. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to choose to go out and shop around. If I've got a ruptured spleen, I'm going to go shop around and maybe get a procedure for a ruptured appendix instead. It doesn't work like that. When you have healthcare needs, they have to be taken care of. So the Republicans have, in their years since Obamacare has passed, have repeatedly pr presented the idea of repealing and replacing. And now that's happening again. You heard it in the opening cut that Donald Trump is talking about doing it again. And as a result, on the debate stage with the with his Republican opponents, they basically came up with similarly vague language. I mean, we're going to do it when we do it. Um, they have the same narrow collection of options as there always have been. 
And none of them speak very well for the Republican ideals of kind of letting the free market manage everything. And to make it more complicated, many Republicans have embraced the idea of cutting Medicare, reforming entitlements. That means cutting Medicare, and Medicare is a um, is the health insurance plan that is most popular for seniors. Now, I should say this. There is a problem with healthcare expenses in our country. No doubt about it. Healthcare is very expensive. Some of it is a result of the capitalist system that, that insurance companies are out to make money. Their whole objective is to take in as much money as they can and pay out as little as they can. We also at the leading edge of technology and healthcare technology is very expensive. So there are things that we can do to make healthcare less expensive. It has been interesting to notice the language being used by Republicans on the campaign trail. They too are starting to turn on insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, good for them. Um, unfortunately, when it comes to taking the next step, which is so, what do you plan to do? They seem to have no really good answers. So what will this shape up to now? What are we gonna see going forward about this issue? Well, I mean, the Biden administration has said pretty clearly that they see this as an opportunity. Um, to change the subject from immigration, to change the subject from his age, perhaps. But this is one of those instances where Biden can say, this is also something that I did. He was vice president when uh, when this passed. It's also interesting slash ironic to point out one other thing. I remember shortly after um, when Obamacare was being considered and shortly after it was passed and the Republicans were derisively calling it Obamacare. It was not terribly popular because people were having trouble understanding it. Um, and I, when I would make my many TV appearances, I was on the Energy and Commerce Committee. I helped to write the bill as one of his foremost advocates, although, to be honest, I wanted a single-payer system instead. Once we compromised and got uh, the Obamacare model of doubling down on, on uh, insurance companies, I was in there. And I would call it Obamacare at every appearance. And I remember I got a call from the political director, a guy named Patrick Gaspar, at the White House saying, we don't like that you're doing this. They're using it to be divisive, and you're helping them. And the argument I made then that turned out to be either right or wrong, well, right, I think, was that, hey, that it, this is going to be hung around the neck of Obama and the Democratic Party, whether we like it or not. We are either going to be proud of this in years to come and see it as a real accomplishment of the Democratic Party, or we're going to be embarrassed by it. Either way, it's going to be called Obamacare. <laughs> either we're going to do it or they're going to do it. And uh, now everyone calls it Obamacare. It's one of the reasons I'm sure that it makes Donald Trump and the Republicans um, so crazy. So what do I think happens now? Do I think that the Republicans actually come up with a plan? Look, we all know um, Donald Trump tried to get rid of this. I guess he said he was going to do it in day one. He was never able to do it. The idea that, that Donald Trump has never known much about legislating or cared very much about getting stuff done. I don't think anything will realistically happen. But if we can push the Republicans into a corner, we being Democrats, asking them what they mean, what improvements they think need to be made, what changes they would make, that's a debate I think we would love to have. Healthcare in this country is complicated, but it affects just about everyone, either directly or through their family. And we all have an experience with it that informs how we think it's doing. So when someone says, we'll just give you a tax break and you go buy insurance for yourself, or when someone says, we're not going to require everyone to offer insurance, I think Americans of all stripes understand that that's problematic. And I also think that this gets to the very philosophy about government. I've argued frequently on my radio show that this is not a battle of Democrat, Republican versus socialism and fascism or anything like that. These are two different visions about how capitalism is to be 
managed, how much protection we give citizens from big corporations. Um, and Obamacare is the perfect example of that. So we'll see. I'm hopeful, look, because healthcare is one of those issues I really enjoy talking about. It's one of those issues that people, I think, all the time or kind of have a, a sense that they know um, when, in fact, it's it's uh, it's fairly complicated in one way that there are a lot of regulations, but actually fairly simple in another way. You don't have a control over um, over your your illness. You don't have an ability to decide when you're going to be sick. You can't choose to be sick or not sick. This is not this is a place that the federal government has to have regulations that protect people. So this week on the Ask Anthony segment of the show, when we come back, it's something a little bit different. I uh, was interviewed for something called um, the Miller Report, Suzanne Miller. She is a uh, insurer. She works in, I'm sorry, not insurance, in real estate in New York City. She's been getting around a lot, does a great podcast. And she asked if I would be on because frequently she has conversations about the intersection of New York's economy and what political leaders think should be done. Now, I am no longer that. However, I still have ideas. So when we come back, um, we're going to hear a portion of that interview in the Ask Anthony segment. That's me. Um, that's me uh, with uh, Suzanne Miller. I encourage you to download and add Suzanne Miller, the Miller Report, to your podcast feed. That's available on the Red Apple Podcast Network right after Ask Anthony. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to the Miller Report. I'm Suzanne Miller, CEO, Empire State Properties, and the host of the Miller Report. Today we have with us an exciting guest. He was born in Brooklyn, isn't everyone? He attended Brooklyn Tech and SUNY Plattsburgh. He started his career in politics and worked under Chuck Schumer for six years. At age 27, he became New York City's youngest councilman. In 1998, he became a New York congressman. In 2011, He resigned from Congress for a sex scandal. Currently, he's rebuilding his reputation. Welcome, Anthony Weiner, to the Miller Report. Thank you. So, Anthony, I had a few weeks ago, I had um, Eric Adams on the Miller Report. I heard it. Didn't everyone? Everybody heard it. Like 600,000 people have listened. Yeah, it was great. But I started the interview, which I think makes me who I am, Brooklyn girl. I started the interview with Where did you grow up? I grew up in Canarsie. No kidding. Like me, what, me and Curtis. Canarsie High School? Where did you go to high school? Canarsie. No kidding. So what I'm saying is when Eric was here, I said to him, it was the, he came the day after the federal investigation. And I said to him, look, Eric, thank you for giving me this interview. But I'm going to give you either the cupcake interview questions or we're going to just, you know, slay, you know, we're not going to really get serious. Are you ready for like some tough questions? No. Cupcakes only, please. <laughs> Okay, well then, I'm doing it anyway. Yeah, you see, that was I, I knew you were going to ask me that. We all know you had some legal troubles with sexting and texting. Correct. Tell us what you're doing now to rebuild trust and your reputation. Look, my my challenges. A lot of people have them. My challenges. I accepted responsibility for. Paid a very high price for them. A higher price than literally anyone has ever paid. No one's ever going to prison for sexting. But all that being said. I don't have, I'm not trying 
I'm not asking anyone for forgiveness. I'm not asking anyone for for anything more than to just hear what I hear what I have to say. I mean, I'm not on an apology tour. When I came on the air and people wanted to ask me questions about it, I answer them. I'll answer your questions. Um, but, you know, there's an expression in my program of recovery that goes like this. They say that what other people think of me is none of my business. If people want to hold, you know, hold an opinion about me because of the years of service that I did for the people of Brooklyn and Queens in this city, they can do that. If they want to hold an opinion about me because of the worst chapter in my life. I mean, I have, uh, I have many, many amends that I owe to people and I'm working my way through them as part of my ninth step. But um, as far as your audience... People are free to think of me whatever they like. Well, some people did question while we're being honest. They said, you know, why are you having him on your show? Like this is, and I said, well, I think that he's done a great job in a lot of areas. He's a specialist in politics. So just tell my audience for a minute, then we can move on why I made the right decision to do this today. That's your call. That's your call. People have the right to make individual decisions about these types of things. But, you know, make it, make it clear, you know. What someone else's view about me is not terribly important to me. I mean, I I know the things that I have to do to stay healthy. I know that the mistakes I made, I know I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. Mm -hmm. That that's this sitting here, right here with you, having this conversation. I know that I I owe a debt to people like John and Margo Katsimatidis, put me on the air, put me on the radio. The show is doing very well. Love John, love Margo. Listeners are responding very well. We're doing better. I think we're doing almost three times as many people listening during that time slot as they were when I sat down in that chair. So people are giving me an opportunity to hear what I have to say. But again, you know, if people want to hold opinions about me, they're free to do it. They know a lot of embarrassing things about me, okay? I don't know embarrassing things about them. Maybe I would think. But one of the things about this process that I have found of going through ups and downs, I enormously, enormous blessings in my life. I got to be a member of Congress being from a middle-class son of a school teacher. I went to the United States, one of the highest positions. I had a job in the, that's listed in the United States Constitution. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not immune from making mistakes. I'm not immune from mental health issues. I'm not immune from addiction. But I've got an enormous, enormous um, uh, uh, blessings. But if you think that we need to spend time meet with individual members of your audience who might say, I heard this about him or that about him, and therefore I don't like him, I tell you who I do owe an amends to. And this is one of the tougher amends, and I try to live in amends in this regard. A lot of people put their confidence in me, voted for me, uh, gave me an opportunity to have those jobs in, in high places, voted for me when I ran for mayor two times. To those people, I say, look, there are other ways that I can be of service. I'm trying to be that now. So you are the expert in politics. I have followed you, and thank you for what you've done and how you've served the country. So, But I, I struggle, like so many other listeners, I really struggle as to why we're so un- divided right now and why can we get along? What do you see in Congress right now that we cannot work across the aisle. What do you see is the biggest issue? Well, I have a show that I called The Middle because I have a general philosophy, a general theory of the case is that by and large, we agree on some of the big stuff. But I think if you want to lay the blame for why we're so divided, I think it's our fault, people in the media. It is a very easy and somewhat profitable thing to put people in silos and repeat back to them the things that they want to hear. We do it to some degree here at WABC. The difference is we very often have someone like me come on the air that makes it a little bit less so. But if you look at the Fox News, the MSNBCs, you look at the Internet, we have an ability to stay in our own silos. And that turns out to be pretty profitable for media companies. I think that, you know, if you look at the the, the transcripts and some of the... Um, 
the, the trials that went on around the lies that Fox News told. Internally, in those emails, people were very concerned about losing business if they told their viewers the truth. That's a problem because you want media outlets to say, listen, whatever the economics might be, if we're not giving people both sides, we're as a country going to go in the wrong direction. So I, I, I lay the blame to a large degree the way that the media has divided us up, which is one of the reasons why when I offer the opportunity to do media things after my career, going on a liberal station just saying liberal things all the time didn't seem nearly as interesting as coming to a station like WABC and saying here's the other side and here are the places that we might be able to see that Venn diagram overlap a little bit. So I believe elected officials should represent their constituents, not blindly follow a party platform. What's your thoughts on that? I don't believe either. I believe that very often when you're in Congress or you're the mayor or you're a senator, your constituents don't have all the information that you do. So very often you have to lead them. Very often you have to say, listen, you might think this is a a great idea, but it's not for these five or six reasons. Or I spent time, hours and hours, reading about other. Look, when I was helpful in passing Obamacare, I had something like 41 different town hall meetings where people were yelling and screaming at me about read the bill and don't force me to get health care and all these different things. Now here we are all these years later because I knew health care needed to be fixed. Many of those very same people are benefiting from the law. So I don't think it should be either one. As far as the party platform, it's a little bit of a mythology with all due respect. I mean, you know, there are very real differences in the way we view things in this country. Now, there are times that we view things together as an issue that then our our party or our media pulls us apart. Ukraine is a perfect example. The beginning of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was broad, broad bipartisan support in Congress to support the, the Ukrainians and standing up to it to an, a violent incursion. Someone who crossed over the border as a tyrant. Now we see that many Republicans in Congress are walking away from that and showing, frankly, more allegiance to Putin than they are to the people of Ukraine. Now, why did that happen? It's not entirely clear. That's more a question for them than for me. But it does seem to me that the that the conservative media, the isolationist media, and their leader, uh, um, who is a pro-Putin guy, Donald Trump, I think pulled them in, in the wrong direction. But I don't think it's in an either-or thing. We don't want our politicians just to be tallying up what all their constituents want. Otherwise, we can just have a machine do that. We want them using a certain amount of judgment. We'll get on to that in a minute, but I want to finish. Uh, you did bring up a good point about the Obamacare. So do you think that we should offer Medicare for all ages? I know you were a big proponent when you were there. Is this working? Are we saving money? Where well, are we I mean, on? look, with all the measures and um, with all the measures we look at, it, are, are fewer people uninsured? Yes. Mm-hmm. Are, is the rate of inflation in health care coming down? Still too high, but it's coming down. Yes. Are people who didn't have Medicaid coverage, the poor and the, and the disabled, are they getting coverage? More than 40 states have expanded their Medicaid. Are, are now people can't be thrown off health care because of pre-existing, uh, pre-existing condition? There's no limits on the amount they can spend. Just about every measure. That's why the Republicans for years have been saying, let's repeal and replace it. Well, I'm waiting. It's, uh, it's, it's 10 years later or 11 years later, and we still haven't seen them do it because there is no better plan. Now, if I had my druthers, I would take a plan that is very, very popular for Medicare, 65 and older, and reduce it to 55, and then reduce it to 45, and then reduce it to 35. So we take insurance companies out of it altogether. Insurance companies perform no actual value in our society. They take money, and they give it to doctors and nurses and take some for themselves. I say cut out the middleman. Isn't that socialist medicine? I don't know. Do you think Medicare is socialist medicine? 
Social we, that we have the best doctors in the world in this country because it's not socialized, because it is fee-for-service. And I think that we do have doctors that want to be in this country. Do med- they love Medicare. Doctors, by and large, like Medicare. By and large, like insurance because they get too many people that come in without it. Now, if you, if socialism means that it's government doing the, the health care. That's not what Medicare is. Let's not kid ourselves. Medicare is just, all we're talking about, Suzanne, is who takes the money and pays the doctors, pays the nurses, pays the pharmacist. That's all we're talking about. When a health insurance company does it, they take 25% for themselves. When Medicare does it, you know what the overhead is? 1.5%. So all I would say is, what do you get? What do you, Suzanne, get when you go to your health insurance company? They tell you what you can and they can't do. They get back to you when they want to. Well, now under Obamacare, the regulations are much tougher. But if, if we believe that someone should pass it through to these doctors, the only question becomes, who does it? Should it be someone that works for the taxpayer or someone that works for the shareholders? Let's move on to what is very particularly important to me, and that is what's going on on the college campuses. I'm sure you're watching this. What's your thoughts on, on, on this hate on the schools, and where do you think the money is coming from to fund this? Well, the anti-Semitism on campus in particular recently has been galling. I don't know how surprised I am. You know, it comes down to this age-old question. Is there more anti-Semitism in the world, or are we just hearing about it more because people feel more comfortable coming out and saying it? This idea that there's some mothership funding some college kid on campus holding up a poster that says something outrageous is trying to make it too simple. I think we do have a problem with our left as it relates to Israel, and we have a problem with our right um, as wanton anti-Semitism on places like Twitter and, and, and like. We have a problem. And I don't know what the answer is because the same people that are now standing up and complaining about anti-Semitism on campus were complaining about people being canceled and people being woke for trying to control the conversation that happened on campus. Look, this isn't a First Amendment issue. People have a right to go outside our studio right now, hold up a poster with a swastika on it. That's their right. That's the First Amendment. Government will protect their right to do that. Isn't there a difference between hate and freedom of speech? No. So hate. you could be you could be death to America and you're okay with that. Not I'm okay with it. The, the First Amendment's okay with it. You you remember the Skokie, Illinois case? You had a group of, of of Nazis that wanted to march through in Skokie, Illinois, and have a and and have a KKK rally in a Jewish community. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, that's who gets to get protected. But that's the First Amendment. On campuses, there's no First Amendment. In your business, there's no First Amendment. You can make any rules that you want. If you think it's going to make people uncomfortable, if you're a company that thinks that, that it's the right or wrong thing to have a certain policy, you're allowed to do it. And I think what we sh- we've seen recently is college campuses and trying to wrestle with this idea of how much speech we should have forgot the idea that they have a right and responsibility that goes with that right. And the responsibility is to make sure people feel safe going to school where they are. And clearly these college presidents have failed that. Would you send your kid to one of these schools? My kid probably couldn't get into Penn. I've been talking to him about being a better student. Mm-hmm. The answer is I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 it's an easy thing to demagogue on right now, and I don't think you're doing it, to demagogue on right now. I saw Elise Stefanik, an upstate congresswoman. She started off this controversy by asking this very direct and easy question to these college presidents. You know, is this a say, I, I forget how she put it, but basically, is it, do you, is this something that the college should, should condone? The idea of asking people, you know, if they support is a, a genocide for Jews. Now, putting aside that no one was doing that, but it was a good hypothetical question. They couldn't answer it. They, the, the, the president of Penn got fired. I think that was probably the right thing to have happen. 
But on the other side of the coin is this idea that um, we have online right now, every day, people that Elise Stefanik is supporting who are saying the most outrageous, racist, anti-Semitic things imaginable, and we're doing nothing to put them down. The, the nominee of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, sits down with these guys who, who are these, with the Kanye West, sits down with these guys, uh, Fernandez or whatever it is, from these anti-Semitic organizations. We can't do, we can't have both thoughts. We can't say it's perfectly fine over here, but it's terrible over here. You know, I think that these colleges are wrestling with a tough issue. This wasn't it. The tough issue was not whether you should consider declaring um, genocide is, a, is compatible with your campus. But the tougher question is, well, what do you do if someone comes on campus and, 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 and wants to say Israel has no right to exist? There are people that hold that view. And another thing, Suzanne, and then we can move on to something else. Young people who are out there marching for peace is something you and I have seen all our lives. That's what young people do. They march for peace. Do they understand what river and what sea they're talking about? Probably not. Do they understand what the Y River Accords were? Probably not. Do they understand what the Oslo Accords were? Probably not. Do they understand what the partition plan was? Probably not. That, to some degree, is a failing of us. I mean, these kids are developing these, these ideas from somewhere. And when they're out marching, I think, by and large, they're not anti-Semitic. They're not hateful. They're doing what young people have always done, which is march in favor of peace. But we have to accept our responsibility for educating these kids better. So you don't think it's been well-funded by an outside source? No. You think that's a conspiracy theory? Uh, well, I, I've, I've seen this. I've been, I've been reading in the Middle East that the, Qatar is, is funding oh. billions of dollars to these schools. You think this is just Qatar all Qatar is funding billions of, to what schools? To eight schools in America. Look, there's lots of foreign money. Cornell. There's lots of foreign money that comes in, but no one's funding anti-Semitic programs. Anti-American. Well, they're certainly not funding anti-American programs. That's a violation of the law. But look... Are there people coming to these campuses? If you want to be, if you want to have a complaint about places like Qatar, it is that they are hosting, um, they're hosting Hamas. If you want to have a complaint about about Qatar, they're being used as passful for funding for Hamas. I mean, there's lots of reasons to be beefy about Qatar. But however, they're also the only state in the Middle East that has a big U.S. base. They're also the state that gets used when we're negotiating things like hostage releases. Yeah. I mean, these countries, if you're looking for clean hands, you're looking in the wrong part of the world. Let's move on to a local city, New York, which is our favorite. And I know that you have also, we started this interview by your own um, scandal. And I know how tough, tough that was, and I appreciate you talking about it. Mayor Adams, he's having a lot of issues right now because he spoke up about the border and he's now having to defend his legal fund. And I think he's done his very best to try and keep the city safe. And he's he's really done his very best. What do you think is going to happen there? With? You think he's going to resign? Do you think he's going to stay in? in, in it's, it's irresponsible to speculate. I, I have no idea. I know that that what I've read in the newspapers, there could be here's the continuum. The continuum is he gets indicted for something. And if he does. I have to assume it's not what I've read about in the newspapers. Moving people up or down on a list of fire inspections does not seem to me to mm -hmm. seems to me within the realm of government. That's what people do. To the other end of the continuum is that there's uh, there are other people that were subpoenaed, other other people that and, and and that they decide not to prosecute. That's exactly what happened with Bill De Blasio. They had a similar investigation with him, and they decided not to prosecute it. Prosecuting an elected official for official actions. Under the most recent Supreme Court decisions, you have to have a direct prid quo quo, meaning someone says, if you give me money, I will do something for you. People who contribute to elected officials are 
citizens too. They're allowed to call up their local elected officials and say, hey, I need this pothole filled or hey, I need this building inspection. On the other hand, if we don't want to have conflicts between people raising money and doing favors, take the money out of politics. Okay, that, that's but right now people are going to contribute, and just because they contribute doesn't mean that they are de facto criminals. So there's a one end of the other continuum is nothing happens at all, and the other is he perhaps gets indicted. I don't know. I can tell you that if there's an indictment, the FBI and the Southern District, there that that's trouble. So 140,000 migrants came to New York since the spring of 2022. How do you think he should handle that? Look, I mean, it's not a it's a difficult problem, not because of anything that he has or has not done. We have something in New York City called the Callahan Decree. It's from the 1980s, from Ed Koch's era. It was a Supreme Court agree uh, a, a, a a New York State court agreement that says that unlike every other city in the globe, in the United States, there is a right to housing. So, unfortunately, the mayor does not have the right to turn around the buses. He does not have the right to arrest them all. He doesn't have the right to put them on a plane and fly them somewhere else. We have to, we, you and I as taxpayers, because of this decree, have to provide housing to people that need it in the United States, whether it be someone that is here a week or someone that's been here a year. So with that as background, he has had a very difficult hand uh, to play. But all that being said, I have been underwhelmed sometimes by his footing on this. Sometimes he'll say, oh, this is outrageous. We're, woe be me. I don't know how we're going to do it. Sometimes he's been, let's just go deal with this problem. If, if I were to offer him advice, I'd say, listen, this is problematic, no doubt about it. But stop with the public whining. Stop with the public complaining. This is unfortunately a problem that was created by mostly Republicans in Congress. I would say that loudly and clearly. These people that are here, just so you, your, your listeners probably understand this, are here completely legally. These are people who have, have applied for asylum as under our laws. Once you set foot in the United States, you may ad apply for asylum. Now, why are they staying here so long once they've applied for asylum? Because the Republicans in Congress have refused to fund enough hearing officers, refused to fund anything to, to where they're going to be staying while they're here, have just flat refused to amend or to fix the immigration laws that we've had in place for, for years. Ever since our grandkids came here, We've had these same asylum laws. I didn't see a Donald Trump uh, Immigration Reform Act during 2017, 18, and 19 when he was the, the president. So unfortunately, this is a quirk in New York City's law. He's doing as best he can. I've seen some of these contracts that look worrisome to me. I think we should do a much tougher job on managing that. But as, as far as this, when you're the mayor, I ran for mayor twice. When you're the mayor, you don't get to pick your problems. The problems get visited on you, and it's just a matter of how you manage them. And I, I would give him probably a, a C on how he's managed it. So two weeks ago, I had George Pataki on the Miller Report, and I asked him the same question. And his answer was that he, who has, he's tackled September 11th, and he's been, has his own issues. I think he did a fantastic job. And he said that he would say that we're not sanctuary. He would send the buses to Washington. It's not a sanctuary. He's wrong. I heard that interview. Excellent interview, by the way, but he's just wrong. Sanctuary city is a completely different thing. Sanctuary city, all it means is that when cities are sanctuary cities, that they, when people come present themselves to the NYPD, to the fire department, to EMS, we don't ask them about their immigration status. That, Suzanne, is all it means to be a sanctuary city. As far as whether they're housed here, George Pataki knows that the Callahan Decree does not give a local official the ability to say, we're not going to house you. That decree existed during Governor Pataki's time. He had an opportunity to fix it. He never did. 
He had an opportunity to amend it. He never did. So it's a little bit of phoniness. It's politics. Now, I'm out of politics, so I can say that now. But this whole idea is I'm going to stand in front of the bus and turn. I have this argument with Curtis Lee on the radio all the time. I'm going to stand in front of the bus and turn him around, or I'm going to put him on a plane and fly him somewhere else. Not available. Now, we can try to bribe them to go somewhere else. That's what many mayors have done. Say, here's a voucher. Go somewhere else. Let someone else take care of you. But the fact is they come to New York in part because of the housing, in part because there are jobs here, and in part because there are communities here that they're comfortable in. I mean, these are people that traveled 5,000 miles, some of them. They crossed five borders. They, 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 they struggled mightily to get here. And then when they got here, they presented themselves to, a, to a, a border officer and said, I am asking asylum. That is what American law applies. Now, as far as why they're coming to New York City, I don't know where your family's from. You said from Brooklyn. My family did the same thing. When we got here, we came to New York City. My family's from Russia and Poland, so Mine we're, we're immigrants, and, and, Mine too. and I'm thankful for the United States. Mine too. So, speaking of immigration, I thought that this whole border thing was a federal issue. When did it become state? What am I missing? Why is that? No, no. The, what, people, what right they have when they're here mm -hmm. in New York City is they have a right to housing. They have that right. However, when they come in at the border, obviously it's a federal issue. In, in, a, in a way, what... Mayor Adams is doing is the bare minimum that any mayor, and I say this all the time to my friends who take, you know, and George Pataki with all due love and respect, and he and I overlapped in service, he would have the same exact problems that, that now you can say where they're being housed is inappropriate, like I think Floyd Bennett Field is inappropriate for this. You can say the contracts they gave out, there's a story in the paper this week that 70,000 meals were paid for by the city but not used and wasted because the contract they gave was for... Nope, I have no, that kind of critique in terms of competency and managing the problem is a different thing about whether, but we would have this problem. Whoever would be in mayor would, 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 mayor would have this. Now, I think I would have been able to handle it maybe a little bit differently because of my understanding of how, the, of how Washington works. How? Well, look, the challenge that we face in Washington is we go, to, we go to Washington and we say, give us money for New York City to help us out with this. And the people that run Washington, the president, he doesn't have a bag of 20s under his desk. This has to get legislated. This has to be appropriated by Congress. That's the way our system works. And for my Republican friends, the fact that this is causing discomfort for New York City, they like it. They like it. I mean, let's face it. They passed a big immigration reform bill in the House of Representatives controlled by Republicans and have a dime for New York. Nicole Maliotakis, Nicole Maliotakis, through the Republican that we have in our delegation here, hasn't stood up and said, let's get more money for New York, because they want dysfunction. This looks bad for the, for, for the president. And this puts, and by the way, they demagogue this. It's the usism and the themism. And so it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult problem to solve. But I think that may, maybe the, 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 the solution is some form of coalition with other cities that have similar problems. But it's a very difficult problem. You know, here's the problem we have in Washington to some degree right now. You have a, a fairly significant part of Washington that doesn't want to do anything. Solving immigration problems is not that hard. I mean, I'm, it's going to require some compromise. But I can in two minutes solve the immigration problem on paper that most – that would pass in Washington by a two-thirds majority. Tell us. Well, it comes down with a couple of things. One, you take the undocumented that are here now and you separate them into two paths. If you can show that you paid your taxes, you've learned the language, you're working, your kids are in school, we're going to give you a temporary document while you're here to say that you're here. Legally, you can come out of the shadows. Two, for people that want to come and leave, come just to work and then leave, we're going to have documentation for you as well. Three, we're going to bolster the border 
and we're going to bolster the border not just for people coming across illegally, but people coming uh, people coming across um, to get here, but also people coming across to do nefarious things. But but we're also going to have to say to employers that if you're going to employ someone who's undocumented, we're going to punish you too. We're not just going to try to catch these people. All of the undocumented that are here working, you know, they have social security numbers and we know who they are because they're paying social security, you know, because they, they pay social security and they never get the money back, but they have fake social security numbers. And then what you also have to do is you say, listen, now that we have all these people that have come out of the shadows, we're going to have a smaller group to be able to catch who are the illegal or the ones who are here to do us harm. And the final thing is on this asylum issue, we have to say we're going to invest a bunch of money to set up hearing officers right there at the border. That would make sense. Well, I mean, right now, that's what that's what Joe Biden proposed in this supplemental that they won't even take up. Hundreds of new hearing officers, not judges, just hearing officers. And what you do is you say it's going to take weeks rather than years. Right now, mm -hmm. the next date for uh, uh, an asylum hearing is about four years down the road. So that's the only reason we're having discussions about whether or not they're going to work is they're here so long. It was never the intention of the law. Do you know who can fix that right now? The Republican Congress can fix that tomorrow, but they choose not to do it because they want the issue, not the solutions. And most people agree. The people who are here that are undocumented, that are working, that are playing by the rules, those are not our problem. Well, they're the ones that are upset because they're the ones that are working 16 hours a day and they're, they're being undercut by people that could work for less money and they no, there's no room in the schools for their kids. Yeah, and, maybe, but they're, uh, they're here undocumented as well. You can't well, say, A lot of them well, are documented. A lot of the Uber drivers, a lot of the people that are working really hard, I've spoken to them, and they feel very, um, they're hurt, that they're angry. That no, they, their kids, about, there's no room for their kids in no, school. No, but we have about 15 million undocumented Americans in this country. And... For those people, those are long time of people who overstayed their visas, people that came. You know, right now, our immigration laws don't keep people out. They keep people in. That someone who came into work to send money back to their family are now stuck here because it's so difficult to go back and forth. That's not always been the way it was. We had seasonal workers all the time. We want these people to come here to take the jobs, to do the yeah, jobs. We need to, labor. And to add to our economy. Exactly. And the problem is those people have no status right now. And we need to fix that. I mean, we have a complete mess right now because every 15 or 20 years or so, we update our immigration laws because we have to. Our country changes. And there's been a steadfast refusal by Republicans because they're all into, oh, no, amnesty, amnesty, amnesty. Remember President Marco Rubio? Yeah. Yeah. He never became president because he had the audacity to sit down in the Obama administration and try to negotiate a fix for some of the stuff. I was at those tables. He will never be a, a national figure because he took that position to try to come up with a compromise on immigration. That used to be something Ronald Reagan did it with Tip O'Neill. We can do it today. Unfortunately, Republicans don't want to engage in that. Let's move back to New York. But there are rumors that you may step up and you might be interested in running for mayor. Is this true? I would be an, an amazing mayor. I've always thought that. <laughs> Everybody hear that? But the, um, I had my chance. I ran in 2005, almost mm -hmm. won a primary, even though I, I was hardly known. In 2013, my scandal revisited, and that's that. I, there, there's time I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm no longer, I think, in the, among the people who would be considered. I found other ways to serve. I like being on the radio. I like being able to not edit what I have to say. Mm -hmm. I like being able to say when I think my colleagues are right or wrong about a thing. I have never stopped wanting to be of service to my city. I love my city. I just don't practically, as a fairly smart political hand, see a, a, pa a path back. But if, some, if you can snap your fingers tomorrow and I'd be mayor, I'd be the best mayor the city ever had. So if you were mayor and we gave you the keys, can you prioritize what you think of two of the largest issues that the city's facing and what's, what you would do to fix it? Look, my, my general take, and it's going to change from year to year from city, is that 
we always were the capital of the middle class. Mm-hmm. We had pathways from into and out of above the middle class. Our public school system was a place that provided us those opportunities. I don't know, it provided you and me those Getting opportunities. Getting the worst scores today. My, 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 people like my mom, a 32-year school teacher, a 32-year uh, a veteran of the school system who retired about, I guess it's over 10 years ago now. The public school system, worth it. We, had, uh, we had job creation that went on on our out of our shopping strips on our, in our, for our middle class. These types of things, a tax system that helped out the middle class a little bit. Even our government and the level of efficiency about our government, the way the government provided sometimes jobs, but also efficiency that they don't today. I think we have to generally make New York the capital of the middle class again, make it more affordable for the middle class, make it easier for them. All of that starts with crime and making people feel safe. And we are a much, much safer city than we had been when I was growing up. We've made enormous strides. I think our mass transit has gotten better and better. Um, it's, it's, it's bursting at the, at the gills and we have to do even more for it. But I think we have to do some things to show the people of the city of New York that we take it seriously. You know, I think every year we should take, I would have all of my commissioners take all of the functions of their agency and tell me why the bottom 5% of what they were doing shouldn't be eliminated it all together. Something that's just not, tell them. I'm not hearing two specific things that you would do that you think is wrong with the city that you would fix. Tell me two things. I, you know, I generally think my city is pretty amazing. I think that we have crime, but it's less than it was and it's coming down. I think we have a mass transit system that we need to invest a lot more in to make it safer still and more efficient still. I think we have a school system that no longer, no longer a school, you know, look, part of the problem that we have in our schools is it used to be that the only jobs that, that some people could have, women could have, are secretary, nurse or teacher. So we had a glass ceiling that kept some of these most amazing, talented people in our school. Now te- now teachers, on average, their tenure is four or five years and they're out. That's a problem for our school system. Uh, we, problem, we, the children, they're not graduating. We have the lowest test scores in the country and it's costing us the most money. And you think that's working well? No, I don't think it's working well, but education in our whole country has got a problem. We have a problem now. I mean, look, here's the, we, we have a challenge that we give to our schools. Just about every social problem under the sun. And we say, you've got to go solve it. When kids are coming into our schools that are hungry, and over 250,000 kids this year are going to go to sleep hungry at night. When you have kids that are coming into the, into this, the school system with, without the developmental benefits that my son Jordan had and other kids have that are coming in that are already pretty banged up and pretty in uh, pretty bad shape. We have 1.1 million school kids in 1,000 school buildings. It is a complicated problem. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's a challenge that I don't think anyone has solved. We are not doing great, but we're basically doing a little bit better than the country as a whole is doing. And the country as a whole is one of the worst ranked that's in pretty, all. That's pretty sad, Anthony. Look, we have a tendency to do it, to talk down our school. I read the papers. You read the papers, right. Yeah. We have a tendency Every to talk paper. down our school. And mm-hmm. we, we, I, I would spend an enormous amount of time going to schools. That was part of my job as representing a, a city council district and a congressional district. I, grew, I went to public schools my whole life. A lot of our peers did. This tendency to say, oh, my goodness, I wish things were like they used to be. We talk down our schools a great, a great deal. Some amazing things are going on in our schools. Now, if you want to take things based on the test scores, yes, test scores are low. Test scores have been low for a very long time. Test scores are low. Now, I don't know. I don't think that kind of thing is going to be overturned overnight. But we have a general tendency, particularly in moments like this, to talk down our city. 
I'm not in that I, camp. I love New York City. I, this city has been so wonderful to me. I, 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 this is it's the best still, city in the world. It still I'm is just today. And I think Mayor Adams is doing his very best to try and keep it safe. And I, and I applaud him for that. And he's a friend. And I think that he's done his best as he possibly can. His hands are tied. But things like police. How are his hands tied? Because of the federal government. He needs money. Because the oh. migrants are costing us $400 a day. Taxpayers, yeah, $400 a day. It's crippling the city. I understand that. But things like education and... and education and, and, by far gets, gets more and, money and, than anything else in the budget. And defunding the police. Are, no one has defunded any police. Okay, so let's talk about the police department. What do you think about the police department? Do you think that they're doing... Do you think we need to strengthen it? Do you think we need more police officers? What's I, your I, opinion? I, I would hire more police officers. Okay. But no one's defunding anything. I mean, if, if you want to say that whenever a budget is cut, you're defunding education when you cut the education budget, or you're defunding sanitation when you cut the sanitation budget, well, or you look, every budget in the entire country is down. So that means every police department is being defunded. It's, 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 it's bull, to be honest. Now, we have fiscal problems in our city, and the police department is a big part of it. Should we reduce overtime for the NYPD? Yeah, ideally we should. We should hire more police officers to have less overtime. Overtime is the least efficient way to fund our police department. Is that defunding the police? I just want to turn down a little bit on the rhetoric here of this thing. Mm -hmm. The police department is doing an excellent job. Crime is down, with the exception of property crimes, crime is down. It is 40% lower than it was when Rudy Giuliani left office and we celebrated how amazing crime had come down. Crime has been very low in our city for a very long time. I grew up in the city. I grew up when, when, when a, a train car would come into the station already with graffiti on it after it just got delivered. I came from a time where getting mugged was more common than not being mugged. I grew up in a time when you had signs, you, you, had, you had signs in your car that said, you already stole my radio. Things are not great now. Any, any crime is too much crime. If I could snap my fingers and say zero crime. But we do have this phenomenon of talking down our city that doesn't help. It's just a question of trying to save our city, not talk down our city. Well, because if you talk to Eric Adams, he's asking for help. Uh, he, he doesn't want to cut the budget. He doesn't want to cut. Mayors ask for help. It's kind of the job description. Mayors ask for help. We have problems in our city. We always do. Is this 9-11? No, it's not 9-11. Is this the fiscal crisis of the 1970s? No, it's not the fiscal crisis of the 1970s. We go through challenge and challenge and challenge. You know what we do here in New York? We put our shoulders back, our chin up, and we get through it. We get through it. We do not, you know, you say, you know, I mean, all that I heard, heard uh, on, on a recent episode that you did, I can't remember because I listened to so many of them, about how we're losing population. You just got done saying we gained 140,000 people who wanted to come here. But they are not contributing to the taxes. Oh, I'm you don't think about so? Well, they're not paying, 140,000 migrants are not paying the same no. taxes as the 500,000 people that left. Let me ask you something. When, when those people go in and buy a pair of jeans, they're not paying taxes? I'm talking about the 500,000 people that left New York. And a lot of people have come to New York. It's still the greatest city. It's I not, get that, Anthony. But the point is that someone's got to pay the freight here. Yeah. That, and and we, we have budget problems now. We, we frequently, do you know the budget problems we have after September 11th? With twice what we have now. And by the way, I looked at some of the numbers. The budget, we have a problem with the budget, but there's a lot of dispute about how bad the budget even is right now. Real estate's doing well. Wall Street's doing well. Tourism is back like we've never seen before. I mean, you know, you, you, the, the subways are jammed at pre-COVID levels. So let's, again, again. I'm just talking about the money. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the money, too. I mean, when people come, what are the three legs of our economy? Three legs of our economy are tourism, real estate, finance. And Those corporations. Are the three. And the corporations, you need the companies here to house the people, Not to make really. them give them jobs, Not really. to fill well, the vacancies in the offices. Yes, but even that is a situation. You know, after September 11th, there was this competition going on. Are we going to develop the west side or are we going to develop lower Manhattan? Because no one ever believed we'd be able to do both. You're in real estate. 
10 years later, both were, both were competing with one another. Okay, you had Facebook going to the west side. We never thought anyone would move there. You have lower Manhattan. Now the idea that they needed to offer subsidies to pay people to go there is a joke. All I'm saying is that in my years in the city, I have seen it go through tough things. And one thing we, we managed to get through, does that mean we don't need to change some policies? We don't need some help from Washington and from Albany? Yeah, the main thing we need from Washington is for them to do what they need for all cities. Start doing their job. Let's go to real estate for a minute so we can both agree on this. Do you think we need more housing? Well, look, we need more of certain types of housing. I think we've got plenty of luxury housing right now. I mean, there's some great, amazing, you, 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 you're probably in, in, in the business of, of selling some of it. Some amazing housing is available. We have a structural imbalance between the number of people looking for work, workforce housing and the workforce housing that we have. And we used to support that structural imbalance by the government coming in and helping. We built Michelama apartments. We built public housing apartments and we built kind of a ladder for people to climb. Well, the government got out of that business about 25 years ago and a little more now, about 30 years ago. And the marketplace won't create affordable housing. It's the same fixtures in an apartment that it's a nice, maybe a little nicer. But if you're building a unit and you have to decide and you're a developer, am I going to go market rate and charge someone $6,000 a month or am I going to try to build a subsidized apartment? They're going to go market rate unless we figure out policies to incentivize otherwise. And, you know, there are some programs that have been successful, but all government really has to work with right now are tax incentives. And, you know, when you're asking for lower taxes, that means the tax incentives are lower also. There's only so much you can do. It's a real difficult structural problem. Here's what I think that, that we should do. I think, obviously, you can do zoning things. I think you should give more density. I think you should figure out ways to use the spaces above public, above public buildings like schools, even let churches sell their, land, their air rights. Anything for us to go upwards because we're a city that doesn't have much land left. But it's a, it's a real problem, and I think that we have to strengthen rent regulations as well. So do you think they should bring back 421A? Yeah, I mean, 421A, I think you have to, some form of it. Uh, you know, it wasn't a, a terribly huge success. The amount of units that actually wound up getting out of it were probably, you probably have to come up with it. You know, I think rather used to be an 80-20 used to be the mix. Mm -hmm. Then they went to closer to 60-40. You may need to go to something like 50-50. But it's a difficult time to be building right now. Interest rates are a little higher. It's hard to figure out, you know, what, what the marketplace is. But the one thing we are starting to see, and you know this, is, is we are still the international magnet for people to want to come. I mean, it is a very, I think that people that come, and this is, you're not going to like this idea, people that come and make second and third pied-à-terres here in New York City, we should tax them higher than people that live here. We should hit those people with a nice, healthy whack. You know, if, if you're a Chinese businessman who's buying a place for your kids to go to NYU, you should pay more in taxes than Mrs. Crapalucci on Avenue P. Um, but it's a very difficult problem because the imbalance is so acute. And the other thing, and, and Mike Bloomberg looked into this a little bit, we have to look at more smaller unit, more kind of micro housing. There are a lot of young people that want to come here. It's called here. pods. Yeah, I mean, they micro pods. There are more people that want to come here in that strata, the, the first apartment renter, that, you know, those people, those very, very the, the, and the idea of them doubling and tripling and quadrupling up in the boroughs, which is what they used to do, even that has gotten harder to do. We have a structural imbalance, and it's one of the toughest challenges our city faces. In fairness, it always has been, but it used to be back in the day, we had some help from the federal government, no more. Okay, so I'm going to um, end this like I talked to every 
guest that's been here about the large question, which is obviously politics. We're coming into a political election. I do think that we're going to see a lot of, I think the economy will be good over the next year because it usually is during an election. So how do you see the next year happen? What is your prediction about next year? And who do you see as the front runner on the Republican side and also on the Democratic side? Well, the economy is excellent right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we now have sustained periods that inflation has come down. We're now getting very close to the Fed target. The Fed has stopped jacking up interest rates because they think so. Job creation is higher than it was anytime private employment, uh, personal employment is higher than it was anytime in, in the Trump years, anytime uh, pre-COVID. You've got um, fuel prices, energy prices are cheaper than anytime. U.S. oil production is, is the highest it's been anytime in our history. So things are going pretty well right now. Now, the perception of it, and I talk about this on my show all the time, is not caught up yet. Hopefully it will, from my perspective, um, by next year. It's going to be Trump. It's going to be Biden. It's a 50-50 race right now. I think ultimately people don't um, want to go back to 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 the, to the Trump time. They don't want to have someone who's under indictment, someone who encouraged an insurrection, someone who participates in anti-Semitic memes, someone who's just as nasty as just someone who violated the, the 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 laws here in New York, someone who's been found guilty of rape. I don't think they're going to choose that. Thank you for coming on the Miller My Report, pleasure. and I can't wait to see what happens next year. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you. Thank you. This marks the end of The Middle Unplugged. Thanks for joining us today. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.